It's Thursday, January 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump addressed the nation Wednesday after Iran launched a retaliatory attack on an airbase where some U.S. troops were based and announced that there were no casualties and Iran appears to be standing down. Instead of any new military escalation, Trump announced new sanctions on Iran. And while a broader conflict seems to have been de-escalated, there is still concern of attacks through proxies, cyber attacks, and what Iran will do with their nuclear program. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios, joins us for the fallout from the Iranian strike. Next, we take a look at some of the newest tech coming out of CES 2020. Sony has developed a concept car, and the idea of ambient technology and AI took off. AI is being put everywhere, and everything we use from our devices to our toilets will be connected and learn more about you. Samsung even unveiled a project called Neon, which it is saying are artificial humans, AI that you can talk and interact with and look like a real person. There are also a bunch of other gadgets and fun things at the show. Stan Horacek, technology editor at Popular Science, joins us for what he experienced at CES 2020. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Great to be with you. So the world was ready for a larger escalation in conflict with Iran. Luckily, it seemed like that has kind of tampered down. The president gave an address to the nation today saying that Americans should be extremely grateful and happy because nothing is going to be happening. The Iranian strike that happened earlier resulted in no casualties. And Iran now appears to be standing down. Those were his words. What else did we learn from the president about the strike from Iran? The biggest thing we learned is that Trump was not going to respond militarily. That was what we were all waiting to hear. And in fact, it was what the world was waiting to hear when Trump tweeted last night. I don't know know if you saw his tweet that said, all is well, which was a good (laughs) sign, I guess. Obviously, President Trump had the casualty reports. He saw that no Americans and in fact, no Iraqis were wounded or killed. And he has decided that this military ladder we were on, we're not going to be climbing any higher on it in the short term. He did say there will be new sanctions coming. Obviously, there has been a series of sanctions, and there is not that much left to sanction, to be frank, when it comes to Iran. But we're not going to be seeing any military strikes in response to Iran's strikes last night. I guess one of the biggest concerns is any type of attacks from proxy groups, because that's kind of how this all had been playing out for the most part. I think it was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on one of the Sunday shows, they're going to start going after the decision makers. And that's why they decided to kill General Soleimani in the first place, because up until then, everything had been carried out by proxies or we took out a proxy group, things like that. But that's the concern right now is that one of these other groups might retaliate in some way still. The proxies are definitely something to watch for. That is Iran's MO, right? Their direct attack from the Iranian military on the U.S. forces last night was an incredibly rare step. Iran usually acts through its proxies. That is deniable. It's less likely to lead to instantaneous reaction from the U.S. Last night, they thought in order to send a message, they needed to go direct. But that doesn't mean we won't be seeing actions from their proxy groups around the region. 
the other big thing we need to watch out for is the nuclear question. Iran has in the past week said that they're no longer constrained by the 2015 nuclear deal that President Trump pulled out of. So if Iran continues to exceed the limitations of that deal further and further, will the U.S. then think it has to take action? That's another trajectory to watch out for. That played out even in the president's address in the morning. Before he even said good morning, you know, to address the crowd or the nation, he said the first thing he said was, as long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. That's how he started. Exactly. And and I'm sure you were, as I was, waiting to hear whether he was going to de-escalate or escalate the situation. And you're right. He started before he even said good morning. He said Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. Very quickly after that, he got into the kind of language that I think is the big takeaway here. Basically, Americans should be happy that this is the outcome with no Americans hurt. We got rid of the guy we targeted. They didn't hurt any of our troops. And this is an outcome we can live with. But you're right. Ever since the nuclear deal was being negotiated and he was a private citizen, he has been very vocal on this issue. He clearly looks at Obama's record in Iran as something that he needs to repudiate. That motivates a lot of his actions on Iran, I think. And so he did say in his speech that everyone who signed up to the nuclear deal, that's the UK, France, Germany, China and Russia, should now basically decide this deal is dead and work with him toward getting a new deal with Iran, which seems unlikely, but that is the path that he says everybody should take. One of the assessments I read said that Iran's attacks appear designed for maximum domestic effect with minimum escalatory risk. And that really did seem to be what played out, right? So the visuals last night were quite powerful from an Iranian perspective. You had the Supreme Leader himself in the command room. You know, there are pictures of him standing there, apparently ordering these strikes. You had Iranian media playing these up as a huge blow to the United States. In fact, there were some false reports in Iranian media of mass casualties of U.S. troops. They clearly wanted the domestic audience to think that Soleimani had been forcefully avenged, that this had been, as they put it, a slap in the face to the United States. And yet, no U.S. troops wounded or killed. Iran did give advance notice to Iraq. Iraq gave advance notice to the United States. So the U.S. in the hour before this attack knew something was coming. And so they clearly did not want this to be the sort of catastrophic event. If you saw dozens of Americans hit by this strike, that really would have put us on a trajectory to war. Their desired outcome was not war here, but it was a clear message to their people that they were not going to take the death of Soleimani lying down. We started seeing satellite images of the Al-Assad Air Base. Tell us a little bit about the damage that occurred there that we know of. And then the other thing was, too, because the number differed a little bit here and there, but they said that there was about 15 rockets that were fired, 10 hit the Al-Assad base. There was another one that hit another base nearby, and then about four or so rockets that just malfunctioned altogether. That's the Pentagon assessment. There were 15 ballistic missiles fired from Iran into Iraq, 10 hit Al-Assad Air Base, which is the base that President Trump visited, I believe it was in 2018, and that was the base he was referring to when he said, you know, we built a very expensive air base that Iraq should pay for if they kick us out. So maybe that target was picked with that in mind. One struck in Erbil, and four, according to the Pentagon, did not reach their targets. President Trump, I believe, described it as minimal damage, but there was damage to the air base. But obviously, the most important thing here is that none of the troops based at either base were directly impacted. 
for Republicans and Democrats got a hearing earlier from uh, the top military brass talking about, you know, why they decided to target Soleimani. It was kind of along party lines for the most part. Democrats didn't really uh, see what the need was. They didn't see if there was an imminent threat coming from Soleimani. Republicans were praising the president's decision. But what do we know about that? And then also uh, what this means for Iran for losing an important military leader. So from the U.S. political perspective, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been the face of this in the aftermath. He came out immediately and said Soleimani posed an imminent threat that there were plots that the U.S. was tracking that would have impacted Americans in the short term if they had not taken this action. The public have obviously not seen any evidence of that. And so members of Congress today were expecting to hear the case made from military briefers. Essentially, Democrats all said we did not hear what we needed to hear to believe that there was an imminent threat here. Many Republicans said they did. The wild cards there were Senators Mike Lee and Rand Paul, who are two Republicans, but who are advocates of restraint militarily. Mike Lee was quite forceful on this point, said essentially we were told by the briefers that we had to trust them, that we had to show a united front and that we couldn't question this decision to strike. And he was outraged essentially by that messaging and said he didn't hear anything suggested that there was an imminent strike and that he wants them to come back for authorization if they're going to take any further action on Iran. So it was split mostly on party lines with some exceptions there. In terms of Iran, they have lost really the face of the regime around the region. Soleimani was not just a military commander. He was sort of the de facto foreign minister. He traveled to countries around Iran quite frequently. He was also an icon to these proxy forces that are allied with Iran. So they have lost symbolically an extremely significant figure. And tactically and strategically, they have lost their top commander. Now, he was part of an institution. He has been replaced by another experienced commander. His charisma and experience was such that maybe there's not a like-for-like replacement for somebody like Soleimani, but it doesn't mean that overnight the Quds Force, which is the elite unit that he was in charge of, has become a non-factor. Iran is the government, not a terror group, and so they will move forward without him. But certainly it's a blow both to their pride and also a blow to their strategic abilities in the region. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. People are talking very much about this idea of ambient technology and AI. LG and and Panasonic and Samsung, they're all very dedicated to this idea that everything in your house will soon be connected. And it'll just work and it'll learn about you while it's working. Joining us now is Stan Horacek, technology editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Stan. Hey, thanks for having me. CES 2020 is happening right now in Las Vegas. And this is the big consumer electronics show. Everybody comes and shows off all their stuff. A lot of times the products that are showed off here are either concept stages or really early prototypes. A lot of times things aren't always ready or the mass public just yet, but there's always some things that are close on the horizon. Stan, just start us off. Uh, what's been the most impressive thing you've seen at this year's CES? 
there's actually been a couple of pretty big announcements here that kind of came out of nowhere. We tend to go into CES with like some expectations. So when you get surprised, that's really when you sort of feel, um, you know, impressed. And Sony introduced a concept uh, car, which is not something Sony usually does. Sony's, right. you know, press conference is usually about Walkman and headphones, and it used to be about cameras and stuff like that. And this year, you know, it's about very big concepts, including a, a self-driving concept car, um, and that was really fascinating. And then, just on a grand, on a grander scale, people are talking very much about this idea of ambient technology and AI. Um, and you know, LG and, and Panasonic and Samsung—they're all very dedicated to this idea that everything in your house will soon be connected. And it'll just work and it'll learn about you while it's working. And I think that's sort of been the thing that's been most interesting to me while I've been here. And that totally rings true with how everything now is Alexa enabled or some smart assistant is enabled for smart assistants, things like that. That's slowly creeping into just about every product. And as you said, you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, everything has that connectivity also. So definitely they're trying to get you connected to your devices in deeper ways than before. And you were talking about AI. Sure. One of the things that was really interesting that kind of just came up on my feeds was this thing from Samsung. It's called their Project Neon. They're not AI assistants. They're calling them like artificial humans. And they're artificial just, humans. Yeah, tell, tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. Yeah, um, if you walk by the Neon booth and, uh, you know, where, where they have it set up, um, it, it's, it's really amazing. They have all these life-size screens and there are these people on them and the people are sort of artificially generated and they, they look real, like it looks like a video of a person, but you can interact with it and it'll, you know, it's, it's pulling from this image data of these people and then it, it's essentially making a digital version of them. And it, I haven't, there's not really a chance to sort of get in depth with it here at the show. Um, so right now it's just these little snippets of having these very surreal conversations with people who don't necessarily exist in the way that you're reacting with them. It's like a, a very, it's like taking digital avatars. Remember when you made those like we, uh, we people or yeah. like Xbox avatar, yeah. it's like the, that times a thousand. It's very, it's very odd. And, um, it's kind of cool, but it's one of those things where I, I genuinely don't generally don't like when people say like, Ooh, tech is creepy, but like this one is a little creepy. <laughs> now, from everything that I was reading, people were really unsure what this was because they specifically said it's not an AI assistant. You're not going to go to it and ask what the weather is or traffic conditions or something like that. It's almost kind of like an AI companion or something, just somebody to talk to or connect to. That, to me, is sort of the je the the end goal of all this, where like, your home is going to be watching you, right? You're going to have sensors in your home. So on a much more basic scale, I don't know if you've watched the Samsung presentation, but they introduced something called Bali, which is like this little cantaloupe-sized robot that like rolls around inside your house and literally uses object or computer vision, which is like object recognition with a camera, to sort of understand what you're doing, who's in your house, what's going on. So it can tell, for instance, like it knows if you're watering a plant. So if you have on your to-do list, water the plants, it'll be like, oh, you watered the plants, and I'll check that. Or it can do things like it can watch you drink the last of the orange juice and throw it in the trash, and then say like, oh, we need to buy more orange juice and maybe buy it. Um, and like that's the kind of sensor technology that's going to wow. be in your house. And you know, down the road, we have to start thinking about 
how are we going to interact with that? Like, how is that going to sh- going to show up to us? And these things like digital humans and, and stuff like that, you know, the two aren't in the same arena right now, but you have to think down the road that they're going to collide. You know, you're going to have this, like this digital entity, you know, Tony Stark and Jarvis. Right, right. Uh, exactly. Almost. <laughs> and, and it advances so fast. Uh, tell us about some of the other uh, fun, quirky gadgets, things that you might've seen out there also. Sure. One of the things that uh, I saw, there's a, there's a, a product out here called Kuba, Q-O-O-B-A, which is like a, uh, it's like a, essentially a motorized pillow with like a tail that wags. Um, and it looks kind of like a cat with no limbs or head or anything yeah. like that. It's very odd. It's very like Cronenberg-y. <laughs> um, <laughs> but once you start talking about it, it, it's actually interesting because the idea is some people want a pet, but they can't feed it. They can't physically take care of it. They just want like the, the, the best part of having a pet is petting it, you know, and like this can offer it. And I think there's a lot of these really cool, like little things that I are seeing at CES that are flying under the radar that like make me feel like old school gadget. Um, for instance, there's a company called Celestron. They make pretty much every consumer telescope that you could ever possibly want. And this year at CES, they're showing off two telescopes. One is $200 and one is $400, which is very cheap. Um, but they have this mount with a mirror on it that lets your smartphone camera see the night sky. And then the smartphone app actually guides you along to find the things in the sky oh, with your cool. like calibrated telescope. Yeah. And it's, it's this thing where you're getting a telescope for $200 and you're getting this really advanced functionality, but you're using like the phone. So you're not paying for it because there are other systems that do that, like that are like motorized and computer guided, but they cost thousands of dollars. And I, I love when companies say like, well, look at all this potential you have in this device in your pocket and we can really take advantage of it really simply. And then it turns out like a video game. You just find the star you're looking for and then you, you look at it. So I was really impressed by that as well. Yeah, that's cool. And one of the other ones that I just want to give a quick mention that I feel like could be a lot of fun is this one thing called Prinker, which takes graphics from a smartphone <laughs> and then you can print it onto your skin like, a, you know, a little temporary tattoo thing. It lasts yeah. for a few days and comes off in the shower easily. But that one seems like a lot of fun. It's about two seventy nine, so it's a little expensive. But I mean, I could just see kids having a field day with something like that. We all remember getting temporary tattoos and Cracker Jack boxes and and beyond that. But <laughs> this kind of seems like that upgrade of that version. Oh, for sure. And you know, like that technology has come a long way. So even if you buy that thing and then you end up like doing temporary tattoos, like at your little league games or something, you know, it could be really cool. And like it, when you you select the graphic. And then the thing is, the actual printer itself is roughly the size of like a, I don't know, a big sandwich, I guess. And then you just run it across your uh, your arm or your skin, and the, it just shows up there. It's like a really cool whiz-bang experience. We're seeing a lot of that now with like uh, cosmetics. Like it uses cosmetics-grade ink. Um, and so there are other companies who are using the same thing to just like literally almost print makeup on or print um, you know, foundation over people who want to even out their skin. Um, so it's really fascinating to see the way that, you know, they're, they're looking at what people do and trying to, you know, make it more efficient, which is cool. Stan Horacek, technology editor for popular science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much guys. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.